I want you to take your, your Bible and turn to the book of Acts. We are in a series called Forgotten. And over the last several weeks and uh, over the next upcoming weeks, we are going to be looking at the lives of people in the Bible who just basically are kind of forgotten people. They're, they're stories that um, we don't talk about a lot, uh, but they're important stories. It is just folks who are average, everyday, ordinary folks whose names um, get kind of forgotten along the way, but nevertheless, God just used them to do extraordinary things for His glory and for His purpose. And this morning, we're going to look at a guy whose life was very instrumental in lighting a spark that sent the message of Jesus Christ out of Jerusalem and into the world. He wasn't a great warrior. He wasn't a skillful politician. He wasn't a a powerful leader. He wasn't a wise scholar or even a mighty evangelist. He was just a simple guy who was given the responsibility of running the food pantry for the widows, the orphans, and the needy in the first church, which we talked about a few weeks ago that was started in the book of Acts. And his name is Stephen. Now, who in the world is Stephen? Well, in the book of Acts, when the early church started to just explode in growth, it became very clear that the apostles could not do all of the work. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, the church literally grew by thousands of people overnight. And the apostles realized very quickly that they could not care for the needs of all the people. They couldn't care for the widows. They couldn't care for the orphans. They couldn't care for just the poor because they were called to pray. They were called to preach God's word. And it just was overwhelming to them. So God gave them an idea. The idea was, let's engage the people of the church to do the work of the church. This is where that all started. So with that, they decided to use godly men, to choose godly men, and then later on, godly women, to serve the needs of the very first church. And they created the office of deacon and deaconess. And this idea went over really big in the first church. In Acts 6, 5, it says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and they chose Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenius and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. So Stephen was one of the very first deacons in the early church. Now, uh, some of you in here... Have, may have had a bad experience in your past with a deacon, or maybe you left a church because of a deacon or a deaconess. But in Acts chapter 6, the whole idea of this office in the church was born right here. However, and this is important to remember, when the deacon ministry started over 2,000 years ago in Acts 6, the whole purpose was to serve the widows and to serve the needy in the church, not to run the church or to be the church watchdogs. Somewhere along the line, that whole thing got messed up. But the deacon and deaconesses ran the life care ministry of the church. And so Stephen was the very first one to be chosen to be the very first life care minister in the early church in the book of Acts. And the author of Acts, the apostle Luke, tells us that Stephen was a, a man that was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith and he was full of power and full of grace. Now, the word full literally means in the Greek that It was overflowing. In other words, Stephen was overflowing with faith. He was overflowing with grace. He was overflowing with power. And he was overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Now, for a guy that is relatively unknown in the Bible, that's a pretty amazing biography. 
And yet, think about this for just a moment. What's on the heart of a guy who is full of the Holy Spirit, who is overflowing with grace, who is overflowing with power, who is overflowing with strength? What's on the heart of a guy like that is people. Stephen was chosen to be a deacon because he was a guy who had a compassionate heart towards people, especially those that were in the church that needed special care. And I have found that people who are overflowing with the Holy Spirit are going to be drawn towards what's first and foremost that's on the heart of God, which is people, especially hurting people. If you ever get to the place in your life where all of a sudden you just don't like people, or people are annoying to you all the time, or they are just irritating you all the time, or you just have a, you look on TV and you have a disdain towards hurting people. Listen, you are probably struggling with a deficiency of the Holy Spirit's filling in your life. Because Jesus, when you look at his life, he was all about people, especially those that were struggling. And what does God want us to be about? He wants us to be about what Jesus was about. And what's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? To allow us to be Jesus here on this earth to a lost and dying world and to those who are struggling outside this thing we call Christianity and even inside. But Stephen was this guy who had this, also had this unbelievable amount of courage. And as we're about to see in just a moment, his courage is about to turn things upside down in the religious world of Jerusalem and to set off a firestorm of persecution and controversy that's going to lead to an amazing movement of God. Now, how in the world could a guy who is so compassionate and has such a big heart for hurting people, almost like this big teddy bear of a guy, how could he be so controversial and so unpopular in Jerusalem with the religious crowd. Why, why was Stephen so opposed here? Well, if you look in verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So the Bible says that while Stephen is performing wonders and while he's performing miracles among the people, all of a sudden there's a certain group of people in Jerusalem who are just getting jacked out of shape and they start to oppose him. And they come against him and you look and you go, well, where did this come from? It came from religious people, members of the synagogue. And not just from Jerusalem, but he was being opposed from all over the place. And this religious crowd is going after them. They start arguing with him. They start debating him. This is way before social media or internet blogging, by the way. This ministry, the the opposition to his ministry gets very, very intense. I remember back in 1998, I had a chance to go to Jerusalem. And um, I had a moment where I was uh, with the group that we were with, and we were standing at at the Western Wall. They call it the Wailing Wall. And it's one of the walls that's outside of the temple. And people, when they go to Jerusalem, and those of you who are going next summer, you're going to get a chance to go to that wall. And people will come, and they'll write prayer requests, and they'll fold it up, and they'll stick it in the wall. But as you're there, what you're going to see, and what I saw, was these very, very uh, overly religious Jewish men with uh, black suits on and funny hats and little curly hair, Habitic Jews. And they sit there, and they read prayers all day long, and they're pretty intense guys. 
And while I was on this trip in 1998, there was one of our guys who was with us who is now a church planner in Vermont, Kevin Pounds. And I'm noticing that these guys are over there, these Jewish guys are over there talking to Kevin. And they're asking him, what are you doing here? Why are you here right now? And he said, well, we're you know, a bunch of Americans. We're on a tour of Israel. And, and, uh, and where are you from? Well, we're from a church in America. Well, all things start getting a little heated at that moment. And now I see Kevin pointing at me. So all of a sudden, they immediately come over to me and they start giving me the business. And I mean, I'm sitting here and immediately I start thinking about this story because right outside where this story takes place is the gate where they're going to take Stephen in just a moment and you're going to see what's going to happen. But I'm looking and I'm going, I can see how things get crazy over here because these guys are yelling and screaming at me. What are you doing over here? Why are you here? Are you proselytizing? All this and that. Fortunately for me, there were some uh, Jerusalem police officers who came in and grabbed me and got me out of this craziness. But I'm telling you, when you think about a story like this, things get crazy quickly. And this story that we're in right now is starting to get very intense. It was very overwhelming. And Luke says that the religious opposition, however, were no match for Stephen's wisdom and the spirit which, he, which was speaking through him. In other words, the haters of the day were no match for the Holy Spirit. Now remember this. If you ever find yourself facing persecution for your faith, your persecutors are no match for the Holy Spirit in your life. You don't need to be afraid. So here's the religious elite. They're trying to figure out what to do with Stephen. And when they can't outwit him, when they can't outdebate him, when they can't outsmart him, what do they do? They arrest him. And the Bible says the elders and the teachers of the law, they arrest him and they bring him in front of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest court of the day, highest Jewish court. And so the Sanhedrin, they, they ask witnesses to testify against him. Well, the Jewish elders get together and they parade out a bunch of guys who agree to make false accusations and then testify against him, probably guys who were bribed. And these guys accused Stephen of speaking words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. They said Stephen was speaking out against the temple and telling people that Jesus was going to come back one day and destroy the temple and that he was going to change the teachings of Moses. And what made their argument so convincing is that they were taking Stephen's actual words and twisting the facts. Now the Bible tells us that while the, whole, while the high court officials were examining Stephen, Stephen's face started shining like an angel. In other words, the glory of God was so powerful on this guy that his face started shining. And finally, the Sanhedrin look at Stephen and they go, hey, do you, do you have anything to say about it, any of this? Are all of these charges that you have just heard, are, are any of these true? And then Stephen begins to put out his defense. And he gives this powerful Holy Spirit anointed speech that just absolutely turns the place upside down and it sets the religious leaders and the court officials into a fit of rage. Now the Holy Spirit, the whole speech is about 52 verses long. I'm not going to read it. But Stephen systematically rips the Jewish leaders and the court to shreds. And I'm going to sum it up for you. Here's what he says. He says, First of all, you have misunderstood your own spiritual roots. And not only have you rejected the words of Moses and Joseph, but you've also rejected the Messiah. He has come and gone, and you've rejected him. He tells them that they have disobeyed God's laws, they have misused the temple, and then he brings the hammer down on them. 
He tells them that they have resisted the true God and his truth. And then he finally ends his defense by throwing out some, some names. He starts a little name calling. He calls them stiff neck, which means heathen, which back in the day, you just, that, that was going to get something going pretty quickly. And then he tells them that they are death to the truth. Now, what's so amazing about this speech is that Stephen not one time defends himself. Even though his life is on the line, he knew it was not about him. He knew that God was going to use him at this very moment. So instead of using this moment to defend himself, he goes on the offense for Jesus. And it was not vindictive. This is important. His defense was not vindictive. It was not haughty because he was under the Holy Spirit's control. And he brilliantly brilliantly used the Jews' own history, which, as you know, was the Old Testament, to prove the validity of Jesus' ministry. Now look at what happens next in verse 40, uh, chapter 7, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, the high court, the Sanhedrin, it says they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. Now grinding and gnashing of teeth is kind of a cool little Bible phrase. Remember back last week we talked about when the Old Testament people would get all jacked out of shape, they'd start ripping their clothes off? Well, in the New Testament, people would start grinding their teeth. And I've thought, what does that look like? You know, you know, that's what's going on here. But it says in verse 55, but he full of the Holy Spirit, it says he begins to gaze into heaven, Stephen, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, as things get out of control here, Stephen starts just having a Holy Spirit moment. Full of the Holy Spirit, he gazes into heaven. He sees God the Father. He sees Jesus standing at the right-hand side. And as Stephen is being taken out of the gate, outside the gate, he's basically having an out-of-body experience. And while they're taking taking him to be stoned, he is having an experience, an intense moment with God Jesus and the Holy Spirit all at the same moment. And he says in verse 56, And behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But the people cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then the Bible says, and when he said this, he fell asleep. As the Jewish elders are dragging Stephen outside the gates of the city, people are throwing their coats down at Saul's feet. Now, who is Saul? Well, he's the apostle Paul, who has not yet been saved. Now, why are they throwing their coats down at Saul's feet? So they can free up their throwing arms so they can throw rocks a little bit harder. This whole scene is one of the most amazing moments in the Bible to me. Because you've probably heard stories before or maybe you've been in the, in the presence of someone who is, is getting ready to die and yet they have this moment where they literally see God. It's like God appears to them. I remember when my grandfather died in 1979 of pancreatic cancer. My mom was in the hospital with him. And right before he died, he had been almost in a coma for a few days. It was like his face just went aglow. He, a big smile came across his face. He looked up at the TV. There was nothing on the TV. 
and he saw God, and he saw family members, and he saw Jesus, and then he was gone. And here you have this horrific, intense, violent moment in Stephen's life, and he is caught up and overwhelmed by the glory and the grace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, how did his death impact the advancement of Christianity? And this is so important. And this is why Stephen, is, his life is so important. First of all, tremendous persecution when it broke out. It broke out against the early church. Stephen's death set off a firestorm of persecution, and the believers living inside of Jerusalem were forced to scatter. When you look at Acts chapter 8, they were forced to scatter into Samaria, into Judea. And everywhere they went, they boldly spoke about Jesus. They spread the gospel. The second thing is, Philip begins an evangelistic tour. Philip was also a deacon that was chosen at the same time as Stephen was, and he begins to take the gospel of Christ all over the middle part of Israel. The third thing is, Paul, who used to be Saul, becomes a follower of Jesus. Remember, remember the guy, this guy, he's standing there, coats are being dropped at his feet. He's standing there as a witness on behalf of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. And he's gloating over what's happening. He was a persecutor of the early Christians. The Bible tells us that after Stephen's death, he actually went on a rampage going from house to house to house, dragging Christians out of their houses so they could be thrown in jail. And then we get into Acts chapter 9. And Paul is on a road going to a place called Damascus, which is, as you know, is part of Syria. And on that road, he is confronted by Jesus himself. And a blinding light throws him down. His conversion to Christ is so radical and so powerful, his name is changed from Saul to Paul, and he becomes the greatest missionary the world has ever seen. Another thing that happens is that Peter, the apostle Peter, the one that denied Jesus three times, he is set on a missionary tour to save the Gentiles. Peter's preaching is the first time Gentile people were ever saved. And all of us who aren't Jews in this room can be very thankful for that. And then finally, a new church was planted in Antioch. Now, where did all this stuff happen? Where did it all start? It started with the death of Stephen. This obscure guy who was chosen to care for the needy of the church. Where does it say that? Acts chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and to Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews, until Peter got involved in it. I'm always amazed when God just takes an ordinary, average, no-name person who is just faithful and full of the Holy Spirit and allows that person's life and even the impact of their death to accomplish some remarkable things to advance his kingdom. Stephen wasn't a super apostle. He wasn't one of God's prophets. He ran the church's food pantry. He cared for the hurting and the needy. But his death caused the story and the message of Jesus to literally be forced out of Jerusalem. There was no other way it was going to happen. Persecution broke out and it was forced out of Jerusalem so that it could impact the rest of the world. Now there's some amazing stories and some amazing lessons that we learn from from this guy's life. One of them, first of all, is this. When our gifts and talents and abilities are under the Holy Spirit's power, God can accomplish some amazing things through our lives. Stephen had a gift of helping others and caring just simply for hurting people. When the apostles recruited him, they obviously saw those qualities in him. But there was something else that set Stephen apart. What was it? It was the Holy Spirit. 
There was a dependence. There was a yielding to the Holy Spirit's control in his life. And that made Stephen a candidate for the miraculous. You want to be a candidate for the miraculous? Allow yourself to be filled up with the Holy Spirit on a moment-by-moment basis. And every one of you in this room that have trusted Christ to be your personal Savior, not only have you been given the Holy Spirit, but you've been given supernatural spiritual gifts by the Holy Spirit. And according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, the Holy Spirit of God has empowered you. Every one of you that have put your faith and trust in Christ, at the moment you made that decision, you were given spiritual gifts, not to make yourself look good, not to build yourself up, not to brag about yourself, but to strengthen the church so that the church could become a powerful tool in God's hands. And when everybody is doing their part, listen, the church becomes the most powerful force in any community. I don't care where it is. Now, in the average church, this is sad, but in the average church in America, about 20% less than actually of people in the church are using their spiritual gifts to serve other people. And that's one of the reasons I believe that Christianity is losing tremendous ground in America. Here at Westridge, over a thousand of you are serving on a weekly basis using your spiritual gifts. That's not including everyone that's involved in outreach, which is about right around 800 people. So that's about half of our adults using their spiritual gifts. Think about what could happen in this church if every one of you said, I'm going to get mine into action. Instead of this, this eight-cylinder, unbelievable force of God operating on four cylinders, we're going to operate on all eight. But see, when the church is running on all cylinders, there's not a more powerful force in the world, I'm telling you. That's how God set it up. That's how Jesus, he said, the gates of hell will not come against it. I'll build it. You make disciples. There's a story of Stephen. It's just this great example of what can happen for God's kingdom when someone just says, listen, Lord, I'm taking my life, I'm taking my, my spiritual gifts, and I'm putting them into play. You use me. Second thing we learn is this. It's crucial that we learn God's word and that we know how to defend our faith. Listen, one of the most things that makes this story so powerful is that at the moment, at the moment of truth, Stephen is able to stand in front of the smartest religious people of the day, the guys who have been trained in Old Testament, the Old Testament law. And he's he's able to defend Jesus using Scripture, and it just left them speechless. They could not defend themselves. All they could do at this moment was grind their teeth, cover their ears, rush at him, and go off into a fit of rage, which ended up stoning him. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, But in your hearts set apart Jesus Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this now, and this only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit, with gentleness and respect. I cannot emphasize strongly enough to you the importance of every person from young to old in this church knowing this book. But also taking it upon yourself, whether you are a grandparent, a parent, a single adult in here, maybe you don't have kids, we need to take it upon ourselves to teach our children this book right here. Not only the children that live in your house, but the children that go to this church. We live in a time in our culture where a culture is shifting radically away from the truth found in the Bible. There are things that clearly violate God's principles that are not only being promoted, but they're being taught and accepted as as truth. And if we don't know this book, 
If we don't know this book, and if the generations that follow us don't know this book, our world will be void of people that have the ability to understand and to defend and to stand up for what God and his word have to say. Listen, I read a few years ago that this generation of children that we're raising right now that are coming through our schools today, they're going to be the first biblically illiterate generation that we've seen in the history of our country. Think for a moment of how that's going to impact our future. Now listen, for those of you that have been at Westridge for a while, I mean, I'm not a doom and gloom person because in the end, I know who wins. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm deeply concerned when, when I look around our country and when I look around even beyond that at our world at what it's going to look like five years, 10 years, 20 years from now when decisions are continuously being made that are totally contrary to the principles found in God's word. I don't know how to say this to you any more than what I'm about to say to you. This book is precious. This book is a precious gift. I mean, it is, it is the very spoken words of God. It's not only a vital part of our growing relationship with Jesus Christ, but we need to know it so that we know how to, not only how to live our lives, but we, we need to be able to defend this book. We need to be able to teach it to our kids. And we need to know it so that we can be salt and, and light, what, what Jesus has called us to be in this world right now. And here you are at the moment of truth. Stephen, he has the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to not only defend this book, but to speak it in the truth of amazing opposition. I mean, the man's, he's going to die. The third thing that we learn is this. When your life is deeply rooted in your faith in Jesus, you can walk through anything that life throws against you. How, how can people who have faced life's worst tragedies walk through those moments. And we all know them. We've all seen them. How can those people walk with grace and strength and courage and, and have a godly perspective? How does that happen? It comes down to faith. When life's worst tragedies hit you, and they will hit you, how you handle that moment and the weeks and the months and the years to come is going to come down to this one question. What's your faith anchored in? That's what it'll come down to. In the Sermon on the Mount, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about wise and foolish builders. And he says that there are two guys that decide to build houses. And they both build houses using the same materials. Their houses look identical. And all of a sudden, storms came. Storms came with the same amount of hurricane force, beat against both houses. One of the houses fell completely destroyed, and the other one stood. Even though it looked a little battered, a little torn, a little tattered, it stood against the storms. What was the difference? The foundation. What made the difference was what those houses were built on. And when you read that passage of Scripture, you read that there are, there are no ifs in that passage, if storms. No, it says when. It's, it's all about the foundation. That's why it's so important that the foundation of our lives are built on a strong, growing relationship and faith in Jesus Christ. Over the last 18 years, I have watched people in this church go, go through some of the worst things imaginable. I mean, people who have tragically lost children, people who have struggled with life-threatening illnesses, people who have been through horrific, painful divorces and the circumstances are just terrible. And I look at those people and I go, what allows those people to walk with strength through those kinds of storms? 
It's a faith that is rooted deeply in Jesus. Their life is rooted in their faith, even through their, their circumstances, even though they're unbearable. It's their faith that carries them through. And I want you to know this, and don't forget me ever saying this to you. Every one of us in this room at some point or another are going to go through a life-altering a tragedy. At some point in your life, you're going to experience something that is literally going to rock your world. And that's why it's so crucial that this word lives in your heart. That it takes up residence in your heart and that your life is rooted deeply into your relationship with Jesus. It is crucial that you just continue on your journey to be a disciple of Jesus, a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. You look at Stephen and you go, how in the world? This guy's getting stoned. He's being drugged outside the gates, dragged outside the gates. I mean, everything's against him. How could he stand up, first of all, to the prominent religious leaders of the day with such boldness? How was he able to face death? His faith was rooted deep in his, in his relationship with Jesus Christ. And then the fourth thing is, and I love this, never underestimate the life of one person who is willing to go all the way for their faith. There is something remarkable to me about people who are willing to lay it all on the line for Christ. I don't know if you know this, November 1st, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And at this very present, there are an estimated 100 million Christians around the world that are suffering unimaginable persecution right now. Every month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 Christian properties are destroyed. And 772 acts of violence every month are committed against our brothers and sisters around the world. And these people, when we, when we look at them and we hear about them, they're not household names. They're not people of great wealth usually or influence. They're just normal Every, everyday average men and women who have just resolved in their hearts that they are going to go all the way for Jesus Christ. Each month I get a magazine called Voice of the Martyrs. Every month this magazine highlights a different people group that's being persecuted for their faith around the world. And many times, I'll be honest with you, a lot of times I have to force myself to read this magazine because it's just... It's tough. But there are times I, when I read the details of these people's stories, I'm put to shame by not only their humility, but for their love and their dedication for the Lord. And what amazes me more than anything, when you read their stories, is rarely do you ever hear them speak words of hatred toward their persecutors or words of revenge. Many times they're, they're talking about forgiveness. They're talking about wanting to reach out and to see their abusers come to Christ. You want to see a movie that will rock your world? Go, go rent or buy or whatever, The End of the Spear. True story about two missionaries, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, who along with some others were ambushed and killed by a tribe of Indians that they were trying to reach out to win the, uh, with the gospel. This was years and years ago. But what blows me away about the whole story when you see it from beginning and it's still going on, but to this point where the, the son of Nate Saint offers forgiveness to the man who kills his father and eventually leads him to Christ. And today, to this day, they're close personal friends. There's just something amazing about people who are willing to go all the way for their faith. Why? Because it changes everything they do. It changes every decision they make. It changes how they approach everyday life. Look at how the Bible describes how Stephen's life comes to an end. Chapter 7, verse 59, it says, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Standing on this stage in front of you, 
I pray I would. But I don't know if I'd have this kind of strength and certainly this kind of grace to respond to this kind of moment. But I, I, I truly pray I would. This is an uncommon supernatural courage on display from an average, everyday normal guy that was simply filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, you go, how does this happen? How, can we, how could we ever have this kind of unbelievable courage? It happens when we yield our lives to the power and the control of the Holy Spirit every day. It happens when we believe God's word with all of our hearts and we live our lives by the principles found in this book and that we trust the promises that God has made to us. It happens when our faith is rooted deeply into Jesus Christ and it happens when we make up our mind, I will go all the way for Jesus Christ even if it costs me my life. Never underestimate what God can do with a person who is willing to go all the way for their faith. They're almost invincible. They walk through life not haughty, not puffed up. They walk through life with just a humble confidence because they know God is in control. Last week I I said this quote to you. I'm going to read it to you again from Jerry Falwell. God's man or woman is indestructible until he has finished the work that God has called him or her to do. In this room and on this stage, I want you to know there are no superheroes. In this room and on this stage, there are no rock stars. We are just average, ordinary people. But what a great story for all of us on this day, during this time. We don't need to fear the future. We don't need to fear the present. I, I, you know, you turn on the TV and it's, everybody's afraid. Everybody's fearful about what's upcoming, upcoming elections, upcoming this and that, and what ISIS is doing and this and that. We, we don't need to fear any of that stuff. We don't even need to fear persecution or even end time events. And here's why. Everything that Stephen had is available to you at this very moment. The power of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, a faith in Jesus given to us as a gift by God Himself, and the ability to go all the way for Jesus Christ. And so here's my prayer for you today. May we be men. May we be women and students and children who allow our lives to be used however God may choose, knowing that we are indestructible until he has finished the work that he wants to do in our lives, the work that he has called us to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, my whole goal here today was to put Jesus on display and to remind all of us of who we are in Christ, what we possess as Christians, the Holy Spirit, the precious gift that we have as the word of, this, with this word of God, the faith that you have given us and how powerful it can be even at our worst moments and how all of that can help us to live powerfully in this lifetime used in incredible ways. If you're here today, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've never received his Holy Spirit. You've never received forgiveness. I want you to pray with me right now. Just say, Lord Jesus, at this moment, I just ask for forgiveness of my sins. Will you come into my life right now and save me? I receive the gift of salvation by faith. I receive your Holy Spirit. I receive everything that you promised me when you died for me on the cross. And at this moment, by faith, I ask Jesus to be my personal Lord and Savior. Would you help me 
right now as I take this step to know what to do next. Thank you. And we as a church promise to help you to take that step. Lord, empower us today to walk out of here not haughty, not proud, but confident, without fear, knowing that nothing can harm us. Nothing can take our lives. Nothing, we're indestructible until you are finished with us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for giving us life. In Jesus' name we pray.